0: Jared Cohen joins us now, founder and CEO of Jigsaw at Alphabet, former advisor to two Secretaries of State, Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton, and best-selling author of five books. His latest being "Life After Power: Seven Presidents and Their Search for Purpose Beyond the White House." And Jared, uh, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, Brian. So first off, the attraction of wanting this job back. This is what Lindsey Graham told me. I, you know, I met with uh, Trump after he lost, and I told him, "You don't need to do this. You don't need to run again. Go golf." go do a tour of the of the world you know you don't need to do it you know your celebrity's going to pick up uh, but yet he wants to get back that's all he does to get back from your experience studying what this position's about and, and how hard it is to turn the page after you leave the White House do you understand it?
1: Look presidents don't want to think about their time in office as their penultimate act right? They, they view it as their greatest act, which is why they don't want to give it up. It's, it's, it's the most dramatic retirement in the world, which is why the founding fathers worried about what to do with ex-presidents. You know, Alexander Hamilton pondered this question of, you know, is it good for the republic to have half a dozen men at any given time wandering around the rest of us like disenchanted ghosts uh, or discontented And, that, and he
0: wrote – and you wrote that quote before in your book.
1: He, he writes it in, in, in Federalist 72. What, what, what worries him? Well, so I think what, what worried him is – remember, they, they, were, they were trying to construct a republic – in response to a monarchy, right? There weren't a lot of examples that the founding fathers had for the peaceful transfer of power. What they were creating was something truly novel. They just had a lot of things on their plate. And I think what's amazing about this question of what to do with ex-presidents, we never really formalized it in the constitution. We kind of winged it throughout history. And there's not a lot of good examples. What I do in the book is I basically highlight seven US presidents who managed to find a greater sense of purpose after they left the office.
0: So one thing that struck people is that President Obama chose to stay in Washington. I know he's young, but a lot of people say, you know, I'm going to move on. You know, Kenny Bunkport, uh, where uh, we're, uh, 41 stayed and uh, Reagan went to his ranch and LBJ went to his ranch in Texas. How unique is it that he stayed in Washington and seems to still be a player?
1: So John Quincy Adams was the first one to stay in Washington, but the circumstances were very different. His wife was, was was terribly ill and it was too icy and he couldn't make the journey back up to Quincy. But I think what you see with President Obama is something that a lot of former presidents, particularly in modern times, struggle with, which is they're constrained by the norm of one president at a time, but they just can't resist the urge. To keep their their, their their toe in the water. They can't resist the urge to insert themselves. And the symbolism of a former president staying in Washington, to me, symbolizes and captures this idea of how difficult it is to let go.
0: Right. maybe not great for the country, especially with people's perception. People's perception is that you're older vice president's president. He is not at the top of his game. Who's calling the shots? Could it be that guy five miles away? <laughs>
1: And by the way, it's very confusing if you look at if you look at Jimmy Carter, right? You know, longest active post presidency in history, forty-two forty-two plus years. He's the answer to Hamilton's question of what to do with ex presidents, which is they can either be a tremendous ally to their successors or they can be a nuisance and their most formidable adversary. And Carter managed to do both. But he didn't do it living in Washington. He still lived he went back home. Uh, to plans and they're, look, they're, there's there's almost kind and of you
0: referring Jared to the fact that he went over to North Korea, he got involved there, trying to get hostages out. He went over to Haiti. He was over there trying to run elections internationally, and a lot of times I think he got on Bill Clinton's nerves a little bit too.
1: I mean, he, 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 he Carter is a tremendous contrast, and again, he he represents the best and both and and the worst of 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 what ex presidents can do. So he he goes over to North Korea um, as a messenger for the Clinton administration, and Clinton in 1994, and Clinton tells him under no certain terms. Are you to make any policy? And Carter says, fine, fine. Um, And then Clinton turns on CNN and there's Carter announcing a nuclear breakthrough. By the way, when the U.S., when George H.W. Bush was readying to send troops in to get Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, Jimmy Carter, who didn't want to see a war, secretly wrote to four of the five permanent members of the Security Council urging them to oppose his own country's policy.
0: Unbelievable. Uh, Who are the seven and why did you pick them? So, I
1: chose uh, Thomas Jefferson, John Quincy Adams, Grover Cleveland, uh, William Howard Taft, Hoover, Carter, and George W. Bush. Each one of those seven men um, had something that they were deeply principled about. They doubled down on those principles after they left the White House and ended up finding greater purpose than their time as president. Thomas Jefferson went on to found the University of Virginia. It's one of only three things he includes on his tombstone. He doesn't include being president. John Quincy Adams had Arguably the greatest second act in American history, he served nine terms in the House of Representatives, were in a much lower station. He found a much higher cause of abolition. Cleveland became president again, so kind of hard, hard to argue with that. Uh, William Howard Taft got his dream job as chief justice of the Supreme Court in his final decade of life. Herbert Hoover's story. You know, this after man-
0: member fam- William Howard Taft famously went against, Tay Roosevelt challenged the guy he mentored, uh, and Woodrow Wilson was becoming president. But what happened to him after?
1: Yeah, so 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 William Howard Taft, um, you know, he never he didn't like being president. He was actually happy. all he ever wanted was to, to to serve on the Supreme Court. He turns it down three times um, in his life before becoming president. He nominates a record six justices to the Supreme Court, including a chief justice. As president, the only reason he seeks reelection in 1912 is to deny to deny his one time friend and and, and former mentor, Theodore Roosevelt, the presidency. It's an amazing story because by the time Taft gets the nomination for the Republican Party, he's basically a political dead man. And his his vice presidential running mate dies just a week before the election. So you literally have Theodore Roosevelt as a third party bull moose challenging the incumbent president whose ticket is literally a political dead man and a physical corpse. Um, and he yeah. splits the party and gives the election to, to Wilson. Tate Roosevelt
0: actually got the second most votes. As a third party, right? And,
1: and you end up with Woodrow Wilson, you know, for for for, for eight years as as, as president, right? Um, and then look, you know, Herbert Hoover is a man who lived to be ninety years old. He's defined by you know four years of th- that that he was in office, defined by the Great Depression. His story is a great one of recovery. He recaptures, you know, his you know status as a great humanitarian, which he had before being president. He recaptures his status as a great executive, you know, reorganizing the executive branch, and he recaptures his status in his lifetime as a bipartisan figure when Joe Kennedy calls on him to reconcile JFK and Richard Nixon after the 1960 election.
0: Wow, pretty amazing uh, because obviously that was a controversial result.
1: And, and it was important because the country was sort of in the the height of the Cold War, showing that bipartisan unity was important. And you know, I think the tragedy for Herbert Hoover, who's still getting kind of trashed and whose name is still political fodder, you know, even in in, in this election, he actually recovers his good name in his lifetime, and then just gets trashed again posthumously.
0: Right. And you're talking about the fact that Donald Trump said, uh, if, it comes, "If the economy is going to collapse, I hope it collapses under him, because I don't want to inherit something like Herbert Hoover."
1: I mean, the FDR guys, they, they really did a, a job on, on, on Herbert Hoover, you know, his 12 years of self-imposed political exile. I mean, it just felt like the FDR presidency would, would, would never end. And it's interesting. Harry Truman resurrects Herbert Hoover uh, in 1945 after FDR dies because he's staring, you know, the, the end of the war, World War II on the horizon. And there's only one man um, in history who knows what it's like to be president of the United States and feed a war, a world that's facing starvation. So he and Herbert Hoover, they formed this kind of unlike likely partnership, but then every time there's an election, Truman goes out and talks about Hoovervilles and talks about Hoover carts, and it's just this torturous experience for Hoover that his entire life, every single election, no matter what he does, he still becomes a soundbite on the election journal.
0: I think his great-granddaughter is Margaret Hoover. And I got to know her a little bit, and she really is making that admission to enough, you know. And this, when this came up again, he says we should correct the record on that. Yeah, first of all, a look, lot of stuff look, you look. inherit. Let's be honest. Look, Mar- Margaret talks about how
1: you know, you know, her father, who was who was Herbert Hoover's, you know, grandson, gets a punched in the face on the schoolyard for, for being tied to, you know, a man that, 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 you know, um, it was his grandfather. And look, you know, Margaret's one of the great Americans. She and I have talked a lot about Herbert Hoover over the years and we're on kind of a mission to make Herbert Hoover great again.
0: Oh, that's awesome. All right. I'll, I'll join in that. Uh, I love, I love people that make a difference uh, and don't get, they don't get credit for it. So if you can rehab it, that's fantastic. So you would, one of my favorite all time people is George W. Bush. And I, I, I just thought the perfect name of his book was Decision Points because that's him. Like, oh, OK, you're critical of my decision. All right. It's fine. Let me just put you in my shoes. And then if you're still, you're still critical, that's fine, too. But maybe you should learn a little bit about what my decision, what, what, was, what was at stake when I made the decisions I made. He wanted to be the education president. Then 9-11 happened. And people say, well, you know what? There was a report over the summer that said bin Laden was determined to attack in America. How did you miss that?
1: So I so George the George Bush chapter in the book, I call it moving on. Um because when I looked at the active living presidents, there was only one whose popularity had doubled and I figure, you know, even for It's his Yeah, and it's his and, and by the way, he's accomplished that by investing less in his you know legacy than any of his active contemporaries. It must drive Bill Clinton completely mad. Um, oh, I love
0: his library. I had a chance to see it.
1: And and look, his his library is a reflection of his values. But I think part of why I wanted to understand why Bush's popularity had more than doubled. I think look, he has this reverence for the Washington principle of when it's over, it's over, um, and you have to separate from from politics after you've been after you've been president. It's aged well, um, you know. Given you know you have a former president, uh, you know Donald Trump, who's now you know on the path to the nomination, and 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 let's just say he's not quiet. Um, But I also think that, um, you know, Americans have gotten nostalgic uh, about this idea of a president who kind of reveres the Washington principle of one president at a time. And they like watching him paint. Right. I mean, he's in Bush is in his mid 70s and they're seeing him, you know, kind of find a post presidential voice through painting that allows him to advance causes that matter to the American people like veterans without undermining his successors.
0: Jared Cohen with us. He's got his book out now. Life after power. Seven presidents in their search for purpose beyond the White House. What I also think is fascinating, and I saw it up close, is Bush forty three is tied with Bill Clinton, who beat his father, and his father and Bill Clinton got along, and I was great to see Bill Clinton look up to forty one, and they did a lot of things together. I think the American people love seeing that. And then when Barack Obama came president, he was saying so many negative things about Bush forty three. And Gates writes about it in his book, he say, "Hey guys, I'm here because the Secretary of Defense carried over to the Obama administration." Not, a, you know, a lot of stuff that you're saying is flat out wrong, and a lot of decisions we made are a lot better than you think, and we'll kind of stick up for it. And 43 kept quiet, always kept quiet. And then when it was time to dedicate the library, President Obama shows up and he says something, if I can remember correctly. He says, You might disagree with George Bush, but it's impossible not to like George Bush.
1: I think that's right. Look, out of the 45 men who served as president 46 times, because Cleveland did it twice, only one president has been. So dogmatically disciplined about fading from politics. Bush never mentions his successors by name. He never hits the campaign trail publicly. He doesn't insert himself. He
0: did once with Jeb, right?
1: But it was actually record. it was a, pri- it was a private event. Okay. Um, and he described it as one of the most cringeworthy moments of his post presidency. And it's a moment that he reminded himself that you have to be disciplined, not just in public, but also disciplined in private. And George W. Bush, look, look, the, the symbolism of two former foes coming together is also a reminder that this very idea of a former president its a feature of a democracy. It's not a bug. And particularly at this moment, you know, people may not like the current set of circumstances, but there's a lot of countries where you don't get to be a former president. Or if you are, you're either you know, in prison for life or suffering some kind of other ill fate.
0: Right. You know who also had those qualities that never became president is John McCain. And I know that when he was able to give credit to Barack Obama after he lost that crushing defeat to him, and he just said able to outline that moment, I think it's just so important to learn how to lose. Bush 41 knew how to lose. He hated losing. We got those tapes later on where he talked about how he thought he let everybody down by losing to Bill Clinton. Uh, but he he lost with grace.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. By the way, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's a it's a worthy time to reflect on Grover Cleveland as well, because this election is likely going to feature the can only I, can I talk yeah.
0: about Grover Cleveland when we come back? Yes. All right. So Jared Cohen, it's great to have him here. Uh, he's an advisor to, uh, uh, to uh, Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton, best-selling author, a perspective about the times we're going through, because some of which is unprecedented to a degree, but not as much as you think. Don't move diving deep into today's top stories it's brian kilmeade hey it's clay travis join me for outkick the show as we dive deep into a mix of topics new episodes available monday
1: to friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
0: Hey, uh, we are back. Uh, the author of Life After Power, Jared Cohen, with us right now. Uh, he's got a great book out. Uh, uh, it's called Seven Presidents and Their Search for Purpose Beyond the White House. Grove of Cleveland. We keep hearing about this. First time we're seeing a uh, we're seeing a president very close to getting back into office. And it's President Trump. He wins. He loses. And he wants to win again. How rare is this?
1: So first of all, um, historically, you know, in my, you know the Grover Cleveland chapter is, is called, you know, the comeback. And, you know, it's not, you know, historically, former presidents have not made good presidential candidates. You know, this is going to, this 2024 election is likely going to be the first and only time since 1892 where two former presidents have had a rematch as nominees. And who was in that in May-
0: 1892?
1: So it's Grover Cleveland versus versus Benjamin Harrison. Okay. Um, and Cleveland, when he's elected in 1884, is the first Democrat elected president Um, Since James Buchanan before the before the Civil War and what people don't realize about Cleveland is he never loses the popular vote. So that's already different from the 2024 election. He actually threw away the presidency. In 1888, on a principle of standing strong on a low tariff. And he said he's never been happier than when he threw away the presidency. And he also entered office as a bachelor um, at 49 years old, married a 21 year old who's the youngest first lady in American history. Um, And he never wants he doesn't fantasize about going back into office. The only reason he tries to make a comeback is similarly on principle. He's worried the Harrison administration is driving the economy into the ground. He's worried about a rising tide of imperialism, and he's worried about runaway uh, populists within his own party. Party, um, and within the Republican Party. And so he makes a sort of reluctant comeback, but he wins the popular vote three times in a row.
0: Wow. And so and then becomes president again. Um, and somewhere in the between there, Teddy Roosevelt is cutting his teeth and getting ready And the turn of the century would be the rise. Uh, and in the beginning of the end of imperialism. Right. That's right. And look, look, you know,
1: Grover. What I say in the book is Grover. Cleveland's comeback is a cautionary tale. Um, right you know first of all, comebacks are easy to ponder they 're hard to accomplish, and when you accomplish it 's rarely the same and as sweet the second time around. Um, the context changes, you come in overconfident, you think you know how to do it. the dynamics are different. The day Grover Cleveland takes the oath of office um, for his second Um, non-consecutive term as president, he inherits the worst economic depression in the country's history. Um, American settlers in Hawaii have set in motion um, a process that would lead to the annexation of the islands. And he feels a lump um, on the top of his mouth and realizes that he may have terminal cancer.
0: Wow. A couple of things. One thing Trump says on and off camera, I know exactly what to do now. And one thing Bill Clinton expressed his frustration because I get it. I know exactly how to do this job. Same with Barack Obama. He's like, I get it. It takes a while, especially it's harder now. I think today it takes a while, but they, they seem to get it. So Trump can't wait to put people in power again. Yeah, look, I think the second
1: if you, there's if you, no ramp up time. There's there, there's no ramp up time, but a lot has changed in the four years. the 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 interregnum, you know, is an inter it is an interregnum that a former president doesn't have a front row seat for. Um, you know, they're not in it day to day, right? You know, they, they they they're they're both nostalgic. Um, for the last time around and their frame of reference reflects a set of biases and assumptions from the last time around and they bring that to the second presidency and so you know Grover Cleveland's you know second presidency w- was not a pleasant one he, he you know, again this is a man who won the popular vote three times he left office the second time deeply unpopular deeply depressed and just having lost valuable years we could have spent with his young bride.